Okay, go ahead and open up to Judges 6, and we're going to look through chapter 8, verse 28. I'm only going to read Judges 6, 1 through 10. Because it's a larger section, we'll just kind of be surveying it mostly. But Judges chapter 6, and we will begin there in verse 1, talking this evening about the next judge, Gideon. Gideon being a Baal fighter. He's the uh, Baal being the, the false god of the Canaanites. He's a Baal fighter. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, these are the words of God. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and Yahweh gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would go up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go up against them. So they would camp against them and ruin the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would go up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to make it a ruin. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh, now it happened when the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh on account of Midian that Yahweh sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live but you have not listened to my voice. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you are our Savior and Sustainer, our Lord and our great love. We come now to your word, revelation, laying our hearts bare before you. Would the sword of your word cut deep like the sword of Ehud? Would we find ourselves humbled like Barak? Would that we be faithful like Jael? And Father, you have established your son as king. May we like Othniel, have the courage to rule with him. Help us tonight, we cry out to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I want to begin tonight by reminding you of the literary context of Judges as it stands in the Bible. Remember that there is some overlap with the book of Joshua, which comes before it, and Ruth, as well as First and Second, well, mostly First, first Samuel, which comes after it. Ruth took place during the time of the Judges, and Samson, who we'll meet in a few weeks, was, remember, a contemporary of the prophet Samuel. So there's a, a lot of overlap in the history there. The point of Judges, in large part, is to illustrate man's need for salvation and ultimate deliverance. So that's just the, you know, take it, take it for what it is. That's sort of the point of the book overall. Our, our need for salvation, our need for ultimate deliverance, that's what Judges is about. And by the way... This is not salvation and ultimate deliverance from the material world. Not like escaping out of here. It's salvation and deliverance from the ever so pervasive power of sin. The very thing that Jesus breaks for his people. Now, the whole book, as I've mentioned, is it, it trends downward into craven despair. People start lacking courage and unction. People start 
Uh, it's like a, a breakdown of society, kind of what we've witnessed of Western civilization more poignantly the past 50 years. But all of Israel goes sour like a perishable food item, increasingly diverging from Yahweh and his commands. Now the judges, these savior deliverers, are glimmers of hope in an otherwise dire situation. The judges all point to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't have the failings that they had, um, and his successes were even greater than their successes. So it all points us to Jesus himself. Furthermore, Israel is unceasingly going back and forth to idolatry, sort of like a pinball machine, just back and forth into idolatry, despite their robust history with Yahweh and their covenant with him. Okay, imagine the next generation of Israelites who totally forgot that, oh yeah, their parents worked on, walked on dry land in the Red Sea when the water was separated. You know, that's a pretty miraculous experience, and yet, you know, even that generation had forsaken God, somehow thought it was better to go back to Egypt. And that's really the issue here in Judges. It's as though they never left Egypt. So it's, it's that temptation to be a slave to sin repeatedly and pre repeatedly rather than living in the freedom and deliverance that the gospel gives us. Now, as a consequence to their spiritual harlotry, and that is definitely one of the emphasis of the, of the book, Yahweh sells them back into the hands of idols. That, that phrase keeps coming back. He redeemed them. Redemption in biblical language is always uh, redemption and buying someone out of slavery. Okay, we're all slaves at the slave market. Jesus comes and purchases us. That's the gospel. But Yahweh here keeps selling his people back into, into slavery and in their idolatry. Now, what is interesting about this passage is that God doesn't sell them back anymore, anywhere, like he had been. He simply gives them away into the hands of the Midianites. So he's not even making a profit here. He's just giving, economically speaking, he's just giving the people back into the hands of the Midianites. So the harlots, in other words, were free for the taking. Now the cycle of sin, then judgment, then deliverance, then peace, and then sin again, uh, that cycle is present in the narrative here in this section, but there's some subtle changes to it as we'll see. Now, again, because this is a larger portion of Scripture, I'm just going to summarize it tonight. Trust that you had read it ahead of time. Um, and you, you'll want to do that with some of these sections, is just to read it ahead of time, meditate on it as you prepare yourself for Sunday, and uh, that'll help you with things. So let's work our way through it. Now, in Judges 6, we learned several things. Already we learned the same thing we've learned repeatedly. Israel yet again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Go figure, right? And as I mentioned, God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. He didn't sell them back. He gave them away into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. That's in verse 1 there. Seven years. And when you read a text like this, the number seven jumps out at you. It's the number of completion. Therefore, hang on tight because year number eight is the year of resurrection. Eight is always a number of resurrection. Jesus was raised on the eighth day the new Sabbath day, the change over the first day of the week. Now, second, the damage done by Midian, we see, is rather extensive. Israel was found hiding in caves, sort of that theological, we are but dust, to dust we shall return. They're in dirt caves because things have gotten so bad. When you sin, you basically dig yourself a hole. Great metaphor for sin, by the way. 
Stop sinning, drop the, drop the shovel, get out of the hole. That's the idea. And it seems as if the whole world is against, against them too. There's no sustenance in Israel. There's no sheep, there's not an ox, there's no donkeys. They have ravished the land. The crops have been devastated. The land is ravished and arid. Economically speaking, they were in complete ruin. All right? It, it wasn't like gas prices were high. They didn't have cars. <laughs> Everything was destroyed. The economy had fallen apart. No crops, nothing to speak of. Everyone had been devastated. That's the picture we're painted here. Complete ruin. In fact, the text says that um, Midian and the uh, Amalekites were locusts in number, as well as action, of course. Think about locusts destroying a crop. That's what they had done to the land of Israel. And they had an incredible amount of camels but Israel had nothing, right? That's what sin does. In the end, you're just left with nothing but your own misery and pride. And verse 6 is key. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh. So in order to see clearly, sometimes God brings us low, right? Sometimes you just have to reach the end of yourself. You, God brings us low. That's time for us to say we need resurrection. And that's the same paradigm here. Curiously enough, the text does not say that God sent a deliverer. That's kind of what we expect, right? You're reading through Judges. We expect another deliverer. Things are bad. Obviously, they need to be delivered. Well, no. Yahweh sends a prophet instead. And why does he send a prophet? Well, Israel needs more than money and assets. They need a word from the Lord. That's what prophets do. They need to know why it is they're being oppressed. Why are things so bad? Why are things really bad in our world right now? In America, in, the, in Western Europe, why, why does it seem like things are really, really worse than they've ever been, at least as we can remember? Well, we need to know why those things happen. And why do they happen? Because the people of God do not adhere to the law word of God. That's the easiest answer there is, and it is the answer. So, they need to know why, so they need a word from the Lord. You might look at your circumstances assuming that you know what you need best, right? Don't we all do that? I know what I need best. When, in fact, you really just need to sit at the feet of the Lord with your mouth shut, your Bible open, and a prayer on your mind. You think you need something, but what you really need is to close your mouth, sit before the Lord with your Bible open, and a prayer on your mind. That's essentially what we have here. Now, the prophet reminds Israel of what, has, what God has done and all these great things he has done. But in the end, look at verse 10, the very last part of verse 10. But you have not listened to my voice. That's it. <laughs> you have not listened to my voice. The judgment is made clear. They are not listening to God. Understanding the holiness and the severity of God himself is far more important of a lesson to learn than relief from your pain and frustration. If there's ever a lesson to learn, it's the holiness and the severity of God. Learn that first. Don't just look at your circumstances and, and look at those. What is behind that? It is God. All of life, listen, get this tonight, all of life must spring forth from a sober, repentance-soaked heart. Now, after the prophet's message, an angel of the Lord appears and comes, and this is probably the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is uh, what we call a Christophany. 
Um, Jesus makes several appearances in the Old Testament, and this is one of those occasions. And the angel, described as an angel, finds Gideon in hiding. So Gideon is the next man we meet, the next judge. He's hiding, and he's beating out wheat in a wine press, which... um, (laughs) In light of recent events, this was on my mind. Um, Beating out wheat in a wine press is like delivering a baby in the back of a Mini Cooper. (laughs) So not the ideal circumstances, all right? It's just, it's not a good situation. And that's how we're supposed to read this text. And we find, I think, that Jesus has a sense of humor. He says, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. (laughs) Which is to say, Gideon. Yes, you, the one here that's hiding, and your life's in complete shambles, and you're actually kind of cowardly, and uh, what are you beating out wheat in a wine press? That's not how we do this. You need air to blow away the... That's not how we process wheat. Well, you're a man of valor, don't you know? That's funny. Here's the cowardly hiding Gideon, and he's a man of valor, which... Again, don't you know that? The reason, though, that he's a man of valor is because of what came before that. He said, Yahweh is with you. Yahweh is with you. God is with you. God God has nothing else to say, nothing else to offer to Gideon. His presence is enough. His grace is enough. And you might have questions, no doubt, but if God is present, isn't that plenty? Isn't that plenty? Isn't his grace enough? See, the valor comes with the presence. God has showed up, and isn't that what God does to us? He changes our hearts and makes us men of valor, makes us women of courage, makes us the people of God. I mean, it's God's presence that makes us that. It's not us. Now, Gideon takes issue. If Yahweh is with us, he says, why in the world are we on the run? (laughs) Why is everything so bad? Why Why are things so hopeless? Gideon thinks that Yahweh has abandoned his people. I mean, look at the world around us. Everything's so bad. God clearly has abandoned us. Well, not so fast. Here we find that the angel is actually Yahweh himself, Jesus himself. He tells Gideon, have I not sent you? Verse 14, have I not sent you? Go, you're a, you are the man now. You are the one who's going to go and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. And Gideon, here's the thing, Gideon knows he's weak. Gideon knows he's weak. He even says as much. He's the poorest, youngest, and least impressive man in all of Israel. He's from the least of the least of the tribes. He's the youngest. You know who else that reminds me of? No, no one knows who, who he is. Sort of like David. Remember when David was appointed a king? Jesse brings out his sons. David's not even there. Obviously, David wouldn't be the next king. He's this little dude out there and tending to the sheep. <laughs> Gideon's the same type of... Gideon's a David, a pre, pre-David, if you will. Now, even still, God promises to be with him. In fact, in verse 16, Gideon will strike down Midian as one man. One man. Now, there's a shocker. Gideon is so weak, the weakest of the weak. He's so weak that it's going to take the promise of God to win the battle. That's why God writes the best stories. Kind of what I was saying earlier. Things are really rough right now, you know, in our nation, economically, politically, all these things. We got them right where we want them. <laughs> the enemies surrounded us. Great. Uh, one general said once, they can't get away now. 
That's our task in the world. We, we have them. They're surrounding us. Great. Now we can preach the gospel to them. Now, Gideon's interesting. Gideon wants to know that Yahweh is really with him, is really with Israel. So he bakes a ton of bread, an ephath of, 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 of flour, which would have been several loaves of bread. He gets some meat from a young goat, makes a sacrifice. He gets some broth, and he puts it on a rock, which is under an oak tree, because that's where you go to meet God, under a tree. The cross was made from a tree. There's some symbology there. But, and uh, if God's really with us, then he'll eat a meal with Gideon. Um, eating a meal with some, someone, we've lost that in our culture today, uh, especially with the drive-through COVID culture. But sharing a meal with someone is, is meant to be, and it was back then, a very intimate experience. If you shared a meal with someone, that is, you're, you're in with them relationally. Well, God does. God eats the meal. Gideon now knows that Yahweh is willing to dine with his people again. He hasn't left us. He is here with us. So Gideon, he builds an altar as an act of worship right there, and he names it Yahweh is peace. Now, if you're reading that, you should laugh hysterically. Yahweh is peace. Why should you laugh? Because ironically, the peaceful Yahweh is now going to break the head of Baal. Peaceful Yahweh, he breaks the false peace in the world. Now that night, Gideon along with ten men, they took two bulls, and, and, and that night, who knows, maybe after midnight, they pulled down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole. Remember, Baal and Asher are the fertility couple of the Canaanite religion. He pulls down the Baal altar and he pulls down the pole of Asherah. And in the morning, people find out about it. The city is perturbed. What did you do? And this is in Ophrah, his hometown, at his dad's house. Who would dare do such a thing? One of the ten probably... Everyone, they knew it was Gideon, so they told everybody because they have a fear of man issue. And they want him dead. They want Gideon dead. And Gideon's father, Joash, he steps up and he says to, to defend his son, he says, look, if Baal is God, this powerful God that you think he is, give it 24 hours, let him defend himself. Gideon will just, he'll, Baal will respond and Gideon will be dead. Gideon's nickname then becomes Jerubbabel, or Jerub, Jerub Baal, if you want to say it, uh, in the uh, Hebrew, he mean, it means let Baal contend against himself. In other words, he's a Baal fighter. Yahweh's demand was simple. Okay? Gideon made an altar to Yahweh. There are two altars. One is devoted to Yahweh and one is devoted to Baal, and those two cannot coexist. He builds an altar, calls it Yahweh is peace. And what does the Yahweh is peace altar represent? God's with his people. Therefore, if God is with his people, the idols have to come down. You can't have both. There's no pluralism allowed, for Yahweh demands exclusive allegiance. So apparently Gideon's father was going along to getting, get along. He was just as guilty in the idolatry, and he wanted to have a good name for himself, so he just went with the flow. Maybe he wasn't really a bail fearer, but he ended up leaping to defend his son during this showdown in the city. And you can see on the map there, again, Ophrah is, is the hometown of, of Gideon. But the point is this. If you are to do battle against the darkness, there's always going to come a time in your life when your commitment to Christ and his kingdom can no longer be kept to yourself, but instead it has to be made manifest for everyone. This is an important battle here. Gideon is making a public statement of faith in Jesus Christ. And that altar coming down is sort of his, his uh, you know, uh, 
coming to Jesus meeting. Everything is, I'm, I'm on team Yahweh now, so we have to forsake these gods. And I want everybody to know about it. And the city finds out about it. And they realize what, what has happened. So you, you, this includes, by the way, standing against your own family sometimes. It, sometimes your friends, your coworkers, perhaps even your own city. When you come to Christ, it's you and Jesus against everyone else. That's how this works. Now, the Midianites and the Malachites, you can see on the map where the Jordan River, the Jordan River comes between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea in the southern part of Israel. They come over from the east and they settle in the Valley of Jezreel. You can see it um, listed there on the map underneath Asher and Zebulun. So they're there and we see in verse 21 that the Spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon. Gideon is a Holy Spirit man. The Spirit of Yahweh clothes him. And now that the idols have been toppled, it is time for their adherence to be toppled. Gideon blew the trumpet. He gathers an army. Um, other tribes join Manassas, or excuse me, Manasseh. Uh, that's a different city that needs Jesus. Um, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Nephtali. These tribes join in for the battle. And to make sure that Yahweh is the one making the promise, Gideon wants to have a sign. Anybody ever ask God for a sign in your life? You don't want to test God. But this was a little bit different. Gideon, God seems to steep, stoop down to, to Gideon in this moment. He asks for a sign, and Gideon says, well, here's what I would like for you to do. There's a fleece here on the ground. You know, God's, God's the sovereign one. If the, if the dew is on the fleece, but the, dry, the ground around it is dry, great. The next morning, it's the opposite. The fleece needs to be dry, and the ground needs to be wet, and this happens. And you might think, well, this is kind of a weird cult-like thing to do. It's not really. The point is God's sovereign even over the natural world, not Baal. God has the ability to create dew on the ground, but not on the fleece. That's a great sign. God, Israel, like the fleece, is under the sovereign care of Yahweh's meticulous direction. Now, chapter 7 tells us about the battle. A couple of days after idol toppling and warrior gathering, Yahweh says to Gideon, you have too many people. You have gathered far too many people. Note in verse 2, Yahweh said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel honor themselves, saying, my, my own hand has saved me. Gideon had amassed an army of 32,000 people. God says that's too many. 32,000 people, by the way, over against over 100,000 Midianites and Amalekites. And God says, that's not going to work. And we would think, well, yeah, they need more people. No, no, no. God says you need less. <laughs> you need less. So according to Deuteronomy 20, if you were afraid to go to war, God's law gave you an out for that. You didn't have to go to war. So a bunch of people were afraid. 22,000 go home. If you're doing the math... 10,000 is left. Now, of course they're afraid. Who's going to go against 130? Y'all, you've watched Lord of the Rings. Minas Tirith type stuff here, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is the battle. There's no way we can win. God says you have too many people. So they, they're down to 10,000, and God says, you know what, that's too much. <laughs> that's too many people. This isn't going to work. Yahweh institutes a test. They're to go to get a drink of water, and those who kneel and drink aren't prepared for battle. Those who lap with their hands are watching their six. They're ready for battle. So, 
How many are left? Well, 9,700 were told to go home, leaving 300 men to fight upwards of well, over 130,000 Midianites. 300. What God wants to make clear is that Israel's weakness is God's strength. Right? We'll come back to that. The glory is not going to be for Gideon. It's not for Israel. The glory is God's. So you look around the world right now and you think, wow, the church is weak and we're, we got problems. Yes, we do. But that's the plan. <laughs> the plan is for God to deliver his people. Now, Gideon is an unheroic, unconventional hero. He's not like the other ones. He's weak. He's a timid man who serves a strong and powerful God. And that's the point. The 300 get ready for battle. Yahweh says that if Gideon is scared, he can sneak down and listen with a friend and listen to what the soldiers on the outskirts of the camp are saying. And so they do that. And interestingly enough, the soldiers were, come to find out, talking about Gideon, the most weak, unimpressive man in Israel. Well, they, one of the soldiers in the tent says, yeah, I had this dream, this barley loaf. By the way, barley was the food of the poor, the bread of the poor. The barley loaf comes tumbling into the camp and it levels the tent. And they had a dream. And they all knew what it meant. They knew it was Gideon. Gideon's coming. Gideon's coming for them. And they knew his name. <laughs> the most unimpressive man in Israel. They're afraid of him. It's shocking how this works out. They also know that they would lose because that tent is their tent. And that tent is representative of Midian. So Gideon hears the dream. He hears what's going on. He bows in worship, trusting in the Lord. Now, you and I would sit around and think, all right, what do we need for battle? We have to have swords, shields, maybe bow and arrows. We have to have those things. Well, guess what? That's not how God's army works in this text. Instead of swords, Gideon's 300. They're, they're divided into three uh, companies of 100. Each had a trumpet in one hand and an empty clay jar or pitcher with a torch inside. Now, it's staying lit, but it's hidden. There's probably a metaphor about not letting your light be hidden. Maybe Jesus was thinking about this. I don't know. So they, they were to go. They were to blow the trumpets, and they were to, God says, to, you need to say this, for Yahweh and for Gideon. That was the phrase as they go into battle. So they go to the outskirts, and the text says that they were in the beginning of the middle watch. So it's nighttime, and there's a changing of the guards. Some of the guards were waking up very sleepy because it was their responsibility to go keep watch. The other guards who had been keeping watch for a few hours are very sleepy. They want to go to bed. So there's a change going, going on in the camp. This 300 basically enacts psychological warfare on them. The pitchers are smashed, which imagine living in a, in a valley of Jezreel and hearing that echo. The pitchers were smashed. What, did, what in the world is that noise? 300 of them smashed. The trumpets are blown. Disoriented Midianites, middle of the night stuff. Anybody wake up in the middle of the night disoriented? <laughs> All the time, right? Disoriented. And that had to have been an impressive noise, 300 trumpets in the valley. The lights would have started to shine because the pottery was smashed, so they would have seen the torches. That had to have been scary or perhaps startling them. They would have assumed, oh no, that's just the first group leading the way. There's probably hundreds of thousands of people coming behind them. So this is a psyop, totally, 
And they, Gideon and his men, go into the camp. And what's interesting is they're not wielding swords. But guess what happens? They, Midians kill each other. Some are coming in and out of the tent, not sure what's going on. They heard the noise. They're afraid. One guy might be coming into the tent. They don't realize he's on their team, and they're fighting each other. All of a sudden, there's just massive confusion, and the 300 simply had to pursue them while the other soldiers later on would join the prince. So uh, uh, the pursuit. Now, there are two princes, Oreb and Zeb. They were found. They were killed. So mass chaos in the middle of the night. Ephraim, later on, some of the battle, uh, some of the uh, Midianites ran away, so they're chasing, the 300 are chasing them. Ephraim is, find, finds out about it. They're upset because they're vainglorious. They wanted in on the battle. Gideon jokes with them. Uh, they missed out on it, and uh, the joke was on them. They didn't understand, and he, they thought they were being flattered, but he was actually mocking them. It was great. Now, if you look on your map, you can see the, the the pursuit of them, the arrow going along down the Jordan River there. <coughs> they end up stopping and cutting east towards Succoth and um, Penuel, and there's the Jabbok River there that goes through there. So they're, they're chasing them. Gideon ends up meeting with the men of Succoth, and they want bread because they're hungry, but they don't want to give them bread. Guess what Gideon says? Well, when I come back, I'm killing all of you. Okay, he went further, look on your map, to Penuel. He goes there, he threatens to tear down their tower because they're just as uncooperative. It's like Israel wants to win, but they don't want to help. So he threatens to tear down their tower. They're uncooperative like Succoth. These are supposed to be their kinsmen. Now, here's what we find in the text here. 120,000 of their own men died by their own swords. 15,000 flee, follow the map, see Karkor. They flee to Karkor, trying to get closer to Midianite territory, which would have been further south. All, everybody's tired, they're confused. What just happened? Gideon, see the orange arrow? Gideon, they assume he's coming straight at them from, from the west. What does Gideon do? He goes around. He's extra tired. He goes around and he attacks Karkor from the east, surprises them. They win that battle. And uh, the slaughter continues. There's two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmanah. They were captured. Uh, Gideon's youngest son was with him, and Gideon put his youngest son to a test, which shouldn't have happened. He said he wanted his youngest son to take the sword and kill the two priests. His youngest son was ironically too scared. And... Uh, he wanted to humiliate them, but that's not what would happen. It was premature of Gideon. But look at verse 16. If you're in chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 8. We're in chapter 8 now. Verse 16. Then he took the 77, there were 77 elders of the city, as well as thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. He killed them. They had sided with the enemy. He tore down the tower in Penuel and killed the men in that city. Gideon is on a mission. This is a very, very, very real war. And Gideon found himself without the support of his own people, those like Ephraim who wanted the glory. And then there was those like those in Succoth and Penuel who only cared about their own stability and their own security. Both are fueled by pride and both are struck down. This is one of the most gruesome battles in Scripture. And Gideon 
we come to find out toward the end of chapter 8, he doesn't actually finish well. They want him to rule over them as a king. And Gideon says, no, Yahweh shall rule over you. But here's where it gets interesting. He took gold from the two Midian kings and he made an ephod, which was a, a decorative necklace piece thingy that the priest would have worn in the temple. But he made one for his own hometown in Ophrah. And look at verse 27. And all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Glorious battle. Weak man wins. God wins the day. He finishes in a terrible state of affairs. Now, the point that is made over and over again in this long narrative is that God's power is most fully displayed when his people realize their own weakness. That is absolutely what you're supposed to think about Gideon. God's power is displayed in our weakness. In fact, if you remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Hebrews 11, which was read earlier, it says in verse 34, and it's on the front of your bulletin, that those people who through faith quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weakness, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. There's no doubt in my mind that the author of Hebrews was referring to Gideon here. Now Gideon's name means hewer, or one who cuts or scatters or fells. It's a fitting name given the fact that his primary task was to obey Yahweh and fell the idolatry in the land. That was his task. Gideon is the Baal fighter. His weakness, however, is a benefit. That's a feature of God's plan. All three chapters are full of weak people. Gideon, the weak man, fights against Baal, the weak false god in chapter 6. He fights against a very weak 135,000-man army from Midian in chapter 7. And then he fights a weak Israel in chapter 8. Weakness is all over the place. When God is strong, everyone is weak. That's the pattern. When God is strong, everyone is weak. The difficulty, however, is getting people to admit their weakness. Think about why you in your own life maybe don't repent of sin as much as you should. What is that a failure of? Admitting your weakness. Because we're too strong, we're too prideful, and we think too highly of ourselves. Now notice that the prophet comes along first, in the very beginning of chapter 6, to give a sermon. He gives a sermon, itself is an act of grace, and this sermon is about repentance. And repentance is given because God is at work. So men do not repent on their own volition because they cannot repent of their own volition. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. So Israel, along with Gideon, they needed their thinking about the situation to be completely adjusted by the Word of God. I can't think of a more prophetic task, ta text for our day and age today. Always have your thinking readjusted by the Word of God. The Deliverer, we find, isn't raised up like we've seen before. Rather, God sends a preacher to herald the good news to Israel first. So men come to Christ by faith when the word of God is proclaimed, and we must believe, that we must believe in that chosen power of God. That's the thing about Christianity today. We think, <laughs> we like to get cute with our preaching, trying to win people to Christ, and with, you know, 
playing on their carnal minds and so on. We throw eggs out of a helicopter. We put on the dog and pony show. We get on the fog machine. And I, I harp on that a lot. But we try to decorate this abrasive gospel so as to be nice people thinking that that'll bring them along. If we could just be nice to people, then they'll come to faith in Christ. But that's not the way we have been given. That's not the way this goes. It's the proclamation of the gospel that wins men and women and children. We have been given the foolishness and weakness of the cross as a message to proclaim. And as weak, oftentimes foolish people, we choose not to believe in its power. We think the gospel needs help. It needs a little bit more from us. Instead of proclaiming it, we, just, we think we can prop it up with cutesy lights and lasers and so forth. But I'm here to say that this is, in fact, this is the power of God unto salvation. We merely need to proclaim it. And what must we proclaim? Repentance from sin and idolatry and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really a simple message. See, note what Gideon does first. Note the very first thing that he's called to do. He doesn't take on the army with thousands and thousands of people. The first thing he is called to do is topple the altar of Baal and the Asherah. And that is because what we learn is idols go first. Idols go first. Long before the Midianites can be dealt with, the idols must go first. Baal has to be dealt with. The very thing that dragged Israel into the oppression must go, must be eliminated. The axe has to be taken to the root. Now, Baalism itself is still with us today, by the way. Right? Baalism is, this, is, is essentially statism. It's the control of men by men. It is driven by nature worship. All of this conversation right now about gas prices, well, it's good that they're high because then people will force them to buy electric cars and that'll save the world because the world's running out and we're all going to die. The reason the altar of Baal had to be torn down was because the altar of Yahweh had been erected. The altar of Baal being helplessly and easily toppled was the true nature of the problem. <laughs> Before any battle with Midian was to occur, the idols had to be eviscerated. I think this is why Peter says judgment starts with the house of God first. The root of the matter had to be dealt with first. And today, the, our great problem of humanism that's a great root problem, and it is humanism, and it has to, that has, is what's given birth to the statism we see today. And the way we deal with it, frankly, I'll just say it, the way we deal with it is by purging the pulpits of humanistic teaching. The way the church thinks today has to be corrected, because we are so far gone. We have to think Christianly. We have to stop thinking humanistically. Our minds must be corrected in light of the divine word revelation of the word of God. And that means the idols in the church have to go first. We have to clean out our own backyards. That's what goes first. That's what Gideon had to do. He went to his father's house. In his backyard was an altar to Baal and a pole, which would have been erected next to it, of Asherah. Clean out your own backyard first. That's the name of the game. We have to stop thinking in terms of pragmatism in the world. What do we, what do we, what, what, what works today? I, I get these ads all the time. Grow your church to 200 overnight. I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> 
It's, it's pragmatism. People think in terms of pragmatism, and we have to start thinking in terms of principles. That's the name of the game. So yes, like Gideon, we must pursue the enemy. We must trust the Lord the entire time. We do need to outsmart the enemy, which is what Gideon had done at Karkor, going in from the other angle. We, we need to be thinking about those, but the, the principle here in this text stands today. You're either with the Lord's anointed or you're working against him. You're either with the Lord's anointed or you're working against him. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. We serve the living Lord Jesus Christ, and you are either working that faith out in your life, in your family's life, and in the life of the world, or you're striving against him. And I fear a lot of Christians today are working against him. I do. Now, the Bible says that God trains our hands for war. That's Psalm 144, verse 1. Why? So that we might be mature, able to take on the empty philosophies and the vain speculations of the world. Maturation is part of the plan. And you see, our relationship to the world is only as good as our relationship to God. If our relationship to God is not good because of idolatry, because of pragmatism, because of bad thinking, it's going to mean our relationship with the world isn't good. And I don't mean like the world approving of us. I mean Christian victory. If we don't have things squared away here, that's right. And, and I have to say, if idols have ensnared us, then we're leading the culture astray, right? The world right now is going astray because Christianity is astray. That's just it. It's, it doesn't get any simpler than that. We have allowed the barnacles of our self-worship to encapsulate us, to render us useless. We are Israel in Gideon's day, living in a spiritual wasteland. A spiritual landscape of dry, arid formalism, which is empty and vacuous. But I'll tell you what, there is a way out. And I'll close with this tonight. There is a way out. Religion want a definition of religion, let me offer this up to you. Religion, by definition, is the human response to the Word of God. So you should immediately be thinking that, oh, all religion is this way. However, we know scripturally there are really only two religions. There is the worship of the triune God, because we're responding positively to the Word of God, or there is the worship of man, and that's everything else. Everything else. Mormonism, Islam, Hinduism, all of it is in that other category. So that's it. There's the thesis of God and there's the antithesis, the antithesis of man's self-worship, and that's all it is. In order to see the salvation that God, see the salvation of God incorporated into the national life of any nation or any people group, it's going to require us to live consistently before the face of God with pure hearts and clean hands given to us by the gospel, while simultaneously challenging all of the places where humanism has attempted to take root. And, and we already know from Judges that Yahweh's mercy is rich, Yahweh's mercy, mercy is deep, but it's not just relaxed and easygoing and chill. His grace is, is tender, it's pure, but it is not to be trifled with. And if you walk away with anything tonight, walk away with this. It is Christ alone, and He is with us. He is with us. He promised as much. It's me and Jesus against the world. 
It's you and Jesus against the world and the foolishness of the gospel that shames the wisdom of man. That's it. And we dare not suggest that God has not given us adequate tools. We have what we need. We think we need a sword, but really we just need a trumpet. We think we need a shield, but really all we need is a torch. Don't make it more complicated. We simply must, by faith, trust him, and we must act in faith. Let's pray. Father, it is true. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Your word declares as much. But oftentimes we think that it's not enough. Oftentimes we think that we need more. We need certain politicians in place, or we need certain budget reform passed. And while some of those things perhaps could be helpful, um, at the end of the day, we, we don't need that for success because success is defined by you using weak people, using us in powerful ways. And only by your grace, Lord, because we know that you are a jealous God and you do not allow that glory to be bestowed upon man. You have reserved it for yourself. So I pray, Lord, as we live in difficult times, that we would trust you, uh, that we would be bold, and that we would be courageous, Lord. And may we not dilute and obfuscate the gospel you've given us. Would we instead treasure it and proclaim it? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.